This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. Check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you'll rate, review, and subscribe to this one, and obviously share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today we have a conversation with someone who's at the center of a lot of different debates in American society regarding COVID policy, uh, the encroachment of free speech, and the way that big tech has warped our discussions around all of this. Aaron Cariotti is a uh, doctor and fellow director of the Bioethics and American Democracy Program at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and most recently, the author of The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State, his latest book. He's someone who has been at the center of a lot of debates regarding COVID. You're probably familiar with his name. And also someone who has been targeted along with other signers of, of the uh, various different statements and uh, policy documents that were contrarian regarding COVID policy, uh, who was targeted by big tech and the White House because of his beliefs. Through a lawsuit that has been going on, Missouri v. Biden, uh, which features uh, a number of different people who are connected to this story, as you'll learn in our conversation, uh, they've been able to acquire a lot of the different uh, documents and emails that were coming from government sources and uh, going into the whole conversation in ways that the public was never allowed to see in terms of warping the way that we were able to talk about COVID policy at the time and that we continue to see play out today with the release of the Twitter files. Aaron Cariotti coming up next. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Aaron Cariotti, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Ben. Great to be with you. I want to talk to you about a number of different things, but first off, I have to say I, I have been shocked by a lot of things in my life that I've learned about. But one of the things that has shocked me the most in recent years is the discovery of the degree to which uh, the government was operating hand in glove with social media companies to try to silence people who are being critical of them. To me, it seems to be something without precedent in recent years uh, and really a disturbing thing uh, to learn. What was your reaction when you learned of some of these emails and the back and forth that were go- that was going on directly from government officials in the White House with these social media companies in order to try, try to silence you and others who shared your views, your contrarian views on a number of different policies. So I actually would have been shocked three years ago, but when I learned of it more recently from our Missouri v. Biden case or from the data that confirmed what we had found in our documents from the Twitter files, 
I wasn't so shocked, mostly because I had been on the receiving end of social media censorship for a couple of years, particularly during the COVID crisis. And I could see that these the content-based censorship was really working hand in glove with our government agencies. And I, I certainly didn't know the extent to which there were these direct lines of communication. I figured that the social media companies, for one reason or another, were just taking all of their direction from the three-letter agencies, whether it was NIH, FDA, CDC, on, let's say, COVID-related matters. And what we discovered in uh, in the documents from our Missouri v. Biden lawsuit, where I'm serving as one of the private plaintiffs, is, in fact, this was very sort of top-down directed from uh, not only those public health agencies, but I think there are at least 17 now different federal agencies implicated in this censorship regime that's been operating behind the scenes, where <clears throat> down to uh, the, the the level of detail of flagging specific posts, let's say on Twitter, or specific accounts, and having a, an official within the Biden administration either from the White House or one of those public health or national security agencies reaching out directly to a high-level executive at Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and saying, why hasn't this post or why hasn't this individual been removed from your platform? So it was happening at a very finely granular level. It was also clear that the White House and these other government agencies, once we got the, the documents, were putting very significant pressure on the social media companies. And so the, the defense that the, the government wasn't actually censoring, that the social media companies were inviting the government in and their interests just happened to be aligned, I, I think what we've seen so far in the communications revealed in the Twitter files and the, in the emails revealed in the Missouri v. Biden case is that, in fact, the government was placing significant pressure on these social media companies, that it was suborning them to become the long arm of its censorship regime. And the other thing that was sort of shocking uh, was th both the breadth, I mentioned at least 17 different federal agencies but also just how routine it had become that there were so many government actors involved in this that it, it seemed that no one thought twice about doing this. No one thought twice about strong arming, about threatening, uh, about, you know, not even just sort of Im the kind of implicit threats that you thought they might want to use and this sort of couch and euphemistic terms, but saying, you know, people very, very high up, even suggesting some of the communications suggesting the president of the United States is very, very unhappy with your company right now uh, because this content is being permitted and this content undermines his favored policy. So the, the extent uh, to which this has become normalized in the in the executive branch of the federal government, that was shocking to me. The fact that it was happening, not so shopping, shocking, but the breadth, the depth, the level of detail, the pervasiveness, and the, the kind of way in which it had become routinized are 
really quite disturbing. And if we end up prevailing in this lawsuit, I think this will be if, if the if the judgment agrees with what we're alleging, which is that government has been colluding uh, to suppress First Amendment free speech rights with social media companies, this will be the, the largest, uh, most sort of pervasive free speech violation in United States history. So, you know, when, whenever you're involved in someone, you want in something, you want to think that it's really big and it's really important and it matters a lot. But just looking back at prior free speech cases and looking back at various judicial precedents in U.S. history, I can't find one that compares to what we're seeing here. And I think this will probably, as a consequence of that, be the first of of many such lawsuits that hopefully begin to unpack the inner workings of the, the censorship regime and, and the way in which public-private partnerships were, were formed to collude in this way against uh, the American people. Uh, define for me the biomedical security state. So the biomedical security state is the welding together of three things that used to be more or less distinct. The first is an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. And I can talk more later about the 20 year history of the militarization of our public health apparatus. The second element is the use of digital technologies of surveillance in order to monitor and control and nudge very large populations. And this was made possible really with the advent of the iPhone in 2007. So with COVID, this was the first epidemic or pandemic of the digital age, of the, of the age of the, uh, the te- technological device that would allow for public and private actors to minutely monitor the behavior and the movement of large populations. And these two elements, the increasingly militarized public health apparatus and the digital technologies of surveillance and control are backed up by the third element, which is the police powers of the state. And we saw these things coming together during our response to COVID with things like lockdowns, with uh, not only the mass vaccination campaign and the, the efforts of, quite frankly, propaganda that, that were used to push the mass vaccination campaign, but even the coercive policies mandating vaccines, mandating masks in certain public settings. So <clears throat> what we saw during COVID was uh, the, the biomedical security state sort of manifesting itself for the first time in a large scale public way. But as I was doing the research for for the new abnormal for my book on this topic, it became clear that there was about a 20-year history of behind-the-scenes development, particularly at the federal level and also, to some extent, at the global level, that was preparing the way for this. And COVID was sort of the opportunity to roll this out on a mass scale. And and what I argue in the book is that even though a lot of these specific policies that I mentioned, that the lockdowns, or the mask mandates, or the vaccine mandates, or vaccine passports, right? An example of that use of digital technologies to surveil and control populations. Even though a lot of these have been rolled back in many jurisdictions, we saw the vaccine mandate for the military sundowned, I think, just just yesterday. Mm-hmm. The, the infrastructure that made all of these things possible and the, the legal mechanisms, namely the federal and the state level declared state of emergency that made all of these things possible. Those are still in place. 
And that infrastructure, the biomedical security infrastructure, is just waiting for the next declared public health crisis. And so what I worry about is not so much that we need a retrospective on the pandemic. Certainly we do. We, we need a post hoc analysis. We need a postmortem to figure out sort of what went wrong and the ways in which these policies both failed to achieve their public health purpose and did enormous collateral damage. I mean, that's obviously really important. Uh, to get that right. But even more importantly, we have to understand how these mechanisms and the biomedical security sort of apparatus is going to be deployed in the future. Because what we saw roll out with lockdowns in March of, of 2020 was not just a novel, previously untested method of controlling a respiratory virus. What we saw, I argue, is a, a novel method of governance is a new paradigm of governance that will require jumping from one declared crisis to the next in order to maintain emergency powers, in order to advance ends that wouldn't uh, be acceptable or wouldn't even be legal uh, mm -hmm. to advance without those declared emergency powers. So if I, if I can interject for just a moment, um, just to use this story because it's in the news, uh, would that look like basically some kind of massive seizure of power on the part of the federal government to say we are in the midst of a climate emergency yeah. and we need to therefore ban gas stoves? Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, I, I talk about the story in the book of driving to work on really day one of lockdowns the first week. Um, and after a couple of weeks noticing, you know, the freeways are clear, the air here in Southern California where I live was clearing up, the smog was was dissipating a bit. A bit. And it occurred to me in that moment, they're going to propose lockdowns to deal with climate change. So that was back in March of April of 2020 when I, that th thought first occurred to me. And it wasn't more than a few months later that we started seeing serious proposals from academics at Ivy League universities, from politicians in positions of power around the world, proposing the idea of climate lockdowns. And so one of the things that we've seen happening, even starting prior to COVID, was an attempt to reframe various issues as public health issues. So, and we could talk about climate change in that regard and just bracket for a moment, you know, your, your views on climate change and what, if anything, should be done about it. Climate change has been redefined from primarily an environmental issue or an ecological issue to a public health issue. If you look over the last really four or five years at all the headlines on climate change, they're now framing the issue in terms of harms to population health, right? And that is preparing the way to declare a climate crisis and utilize this quote unquote public health apparatus, the biosecurity apparatus that was deployed during COVID for these other purposes. And to do so again, under a declared state of emergency, allowing increased executive power. So most Americans may not be aware, we're still operating under a state of emergency at the federal level for COVID, even though President Biden declared just before the midterms on 60 Minutes that the pandemic was over, you saw that his advisors immediately panicked and said, no, 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 you can't say that. Well, it would have, would have been politically advantageous to say that coming into the midterm elections. Obviously, you know, we've gotten a handle on this crisis 
uh, during uh, the first two years of my presidency and we're moving back to normal. Why did his advisors panic? Well, they knew that if the pandemic was over, then the declared federal emergency would have to be ended, would have to be sundowned. And the president gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers during this declared health emergency, powers that he can delegate to people like Javier Becerra, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, and other unelected bureaucrats in the executive branch. And, you know, as we know from from history, once people gain new powers, they're very reluctant to relinquish them. Here in California, where I live, still operating under a a statewide uh, state of emergency for COVID. We saw efforts to sort of create monkeypox as a, as a public health threat to everyone, even though it's only it's only a threat to a very small segment of the population engaged in very specific kinds of behaviors. And so, whether it's whether it's a novel virus uh, or whether it's a, a previously um, uh, an issue that was previously not understood to be a health-related issue, now reframed as a public health issue. Mm-hmm. We're going to see something coming down the pike uh, and efforts to to create the next next crisis in order to deploy the apparatus that I described previously. And I think what we're seeing now with natural gas stoves is a perfect example yeah. of you know an attempt to exercise undue control over the minutia of people's lives in order to advance other economic and political ends. Well, you know, just thinking through it, of course, you know, uh, we have to acknowledge the, the quote about, uh, you know, the bureaucratic agency as being the closest thing on earth to eternal life. Um, but, <laughs> but I do think, but I do think that, you know, you, you're, you're onto something really important there because, I think people think about this as being about the thing. In other words, like this, this stove stuff, it's about the stoves, right? It's not about the stove. That's right. It's about the way that you think of your life and the way that you think of the government's relationship with you. It's the way that you move someone from being a citizen to being a subject. And that to me is, is the really vicious underlying truth about all of these different things. It's you micromanage down to the point where people start to think about the relationship they have with you differently. And so when government tells you to do something, you do it. And when the bureaucrat says, put this on, take this off, lock down, stay home, what have you, uh, that you do it too, without even thinking. And, you know, from my perspective, that's, that's the really devious aspect of this. I agree 100%. I mean, yeah, just so very, very well put. And what what the leadership class is discovering is that health and safety are the most powerful pretext in order to mm-hmm. do this. I should say rediscovering because historically, this is not the first time that a, a declared public health or safety emergency has been used to augment power or to maintain undue power. So, I mean, a, a clear historical example of this is Germany in the 1930s. People mm-hmm. forget that the Nazis governed for virtually the entirety of their time in power, about 12 years, under Article 38 of the Weimar Constitution, which allowed for, guess what, the suspension of German laws during a time of emergency. And that emergency lasted a very long time. So Hitler's regime never overturned the Weimar Constitution. They just held it in abeyance 
They just bracketed it uh, mm-hmm. using this legal sort of health and, and safety pretext in order to do that, this state of exception. And, and we're seeing the same thing now. And we're also seeing the way in which, well, we saw during COVID, the way in which this worked psychologically. So back in 2018, if you would have told people, you know, in a year or two, you're going to have to show a QR code on your phone demonstrating that you've done what the government told you to do in order to. Just you saying it makes my yeah, skin crawl. <laughs> you know, get on a plane, get on a train, go to a restaurant, get back into your own country of origin. And, and that thing the government told you to do might might include in, injecting a novel gene therapy that you may or may not have wanted, a novel vaccine that you may or may not have wanted. People, yeah, Americans would have recoiled in horror and said, oh, that sounds dystopian. We're never going to do that. Well, how did that happen so quickly? The, the lockdowns and the psychological strain of lockdowns and the social isolation and isolating people behind screens such that that was their only way to communicate. This took an immense psychological toll on the American people. And people were desperate by the end of 2020 to get back to normal. And they were willing to do just about anything in order to get back to a semblance of normality. And of course, the goalposts for what you had to do to get back to normal, to get your life back and your basic civil liberties, freedom of association, freedom of worship, freedom of speech back, uh, those goalposts kept moving because, again, this was a very useful pretext in order to get people to do uh, what the government wanted them to do. And again, we're sort of out of the woods of a lot of that at this point, but we've had three years now of immensely powerful psychological conditioning such Mm -hmm. that people now are not blinking an eye at the gas stove thing. Whereas I think back in 2018, there would have been an outcry. What's going on? Natural gas is one of the cleanest forms of energy, our natural gas reserves in the United States are very abundant. Um, you know, why did my gas bill? My gas bill just tripled in California mm-hmm. overnight. Uh, mm-hmm. Just just cut the bill a couple of days ago, and um, I can't imagine that even Californians would have taken this lying down a few years ago. But I think there's something about what we endured um, during. COVID, not because of the virus, but because of our policy response to the mm-hmm. virus that I'll, I'll, has I'll just kind know. of worn us down and, yeah. and, you know, reframed, as you said, reframed our relationship to power. And I think this is very, very worrisome. I will just point out that they definitely use gas stoves at the French Laundry. <laughs> so um, so the, uh, uh, the thing so. that is the thing that is so interesting to me. Um, about this dynamic is that I remember and I served in government during the, the George W. Bush era and the response to 9-11, the, the Patriot Act era, when the civil libertarian side of things animated a lot of people on the left um, who, you know, were absolutely dedicated to the freedom of speech, to uh, pushing back against these right-wing policies that they viewed as being authoritarian and designed to shut down speech, to, you know, to monitor Mm -hmm. American Muslims, to, you know, check you out based on the library books that you're getting, you know, library books. Remember, remember when those were were places that we, 
we went that weren't just dominated by homeless people. Um, the, the, the thing that is interesting to me about that is that today that entire segment seems to be absent. You know, you still have the great Glenn Greenwald's Matt Taibbi, obviously right. still very much around. Um, and you know, this was a, a period of time when you, you know, had, you know, a lot of people who were on the left joining with some kind of right libertarian types yep. to, to criticize uh, this government behavior. That pales in comparison to the story that we have learned about in the last several That's weeks right. um, that has been proven, I should say, in the last several weeks yeah. uh, regarding the White House's uh, behavior and the government's behavior, the the, um, the alphabet agency's you know, behavior when uh, it comes to the silencing of speech. And yet that I don't see that same kind of right left confluence in terms of the the amount of frustration that is out there i'm sure it does exist uh you know there's some people who are examples of it but it's much more muted uh than what we saw in the past i'd like to hear your thoughts on why that is so i think you're absolutely right um my thoughts on why that is is that that kind of <clears throat> libertarian liberalism uh or uh, that version of classical liberalism that worried about due process, you know, for people who were suspected of terrorism, that worried about surveillance, that worried about ordinary citizens being patted down at the airports. Uh, I think that was a useful uh, mechanism of uh, both critiquing power and trying to gain the upper hand when it came to power. So this is a cynical interpretation um, is is basically that there were a lot of people that were crying foul at that time that were happy once they found themselves in positions of power or once they had gained control of either the governing institutions or the elite institutions of culture to exercise power in exactly the same way against their perceived political enemies. So, um, I, I'm not sure how many of them, with some notable exceptions, really believed what they were saying at the time, uh, because they're certainly not willing to uh, stand up for those same rights today. Um, it, uh, you know, unless the person who's exercising that power is someone that they are happy to criticize. So, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine that um, if under Donald Trump's presidency, we had seen this censorship operating in the way that it has during Biden's presidency. And it was operating to some extent at that time, which is why this, this shouldn't be a partisan issue. No. But, uh, but clearly, uh, I, I think Biden's White House has supported the censorship regime in ways that at least at this point, we don't have evidence that Trump, Trump's White House was, was doing that. Mm -hmm. the, but, um, you know, had Missouri v. v. Trump been filed a couple yeah. of years ago, all those same people would be would be crying foul. And this would be on the front page of mm -hmm. every newspaper. So I think you do have the honest liberals like Taibbi and, and Barry Weiss and, um, and and Glenn Greenwald, who deeply care uh, about uh, about liberalism and have that strain of classical liberalism that that wants a plurality of voices to be able to flourish and wants a marketplace of ideas and so forth and is willing to 
treat, you know, with some degree of regard or respect, or at least, at least allow for voices of people that they disagree with. And I, I just don't see that operating for the most yeah. part on the left anymore. And, and there are a lot of people on the left that are politically homeless now yeah. that, that have told me um, most because of what happened during the pandemic that, you know, I, I'm not ready to sort of adopt the Republican platform or a more conservative agenda. But on these issues, um, you know, I'm I find myself watching Fox News and listening mm-hmm. to people that, you know, three, four years ago, I would have. I would have never imagined that I would be paying attention to just to get a different perspective on what's going on today. I hear that too, particularly from my left of center friends in California. Um, The uh, I'm reminded as you, as you talk of um, the, there's a, it's an old uh, internet uh, comic that was posted on like a Tumblr or something back in the day that was uh, Calvin and Wadib. Uh, and it was all like Calvin and Hobbes uh, uh, comics, but with quotes from Frank Herbert's, you know, uh, Dune <laughs> cycle. And there's one in particular where it's it's him arguing with his his babysitter and the babysitter says, um, when you are less uh, when, when I am less powerful than you, I ask you for rights because that is according to your principles. Yeah. And when I am more powerful than you. I take your rights away because that is according to my, my principles. principles. Yeah. There you <laughs> and, go. Well and, put. <laughs> and that, that really does seem like what we've been living through. So yeah. my question now is, you know, how do we navigate our way out of this reality? Because we're here, we've realized where we are. Yeah. Um, the scales are off our eyes or, you know, the off the eyes, I think of the people who are paying attention to, um, uh, to your experience and to and to the experience of others like you, but I don't think that a lot of people. And this is something that people do come up and ask me about. In fact, last night someone came up to me in a restaurant and said, uh, "You know, how do we get out of this circumstance where they feel like this is okay and they can just run our lives like this uh, and and you know uh, get us knocked off any social media platform with the flick of a wrist." Because I don't think people have confidence that that's going to be a situation that changes organically. Um, So how do we figure out what's the path? I've been puzzling over this question for three years now. It seems to me that in the short term, we have to try to utilize the power of the courts. And I don't have a I don't have a lot of confidence in the courts. But mm-hmm. right now, the, the federal courts, I think, are the only places where you have a chance of finding a fair minded judge that still, to some extent, believes in the Constitution or at least has to rule according to precedent uh, that would uphold certain constitutional rights. And it's clear that our constitutional rights have been and continue to be massively violated. So, a, a strategy in the short term of uh, trying to battle in the court in, in the federal courts to um, to at least hold that ground. First Amendment, uh, freedom of speech, free association, free exercise of religion. I don't I don't think that if the government backs off, the problem of social media censorship is going to stop. Um, I think it'll be really hard to dismantle this censorship regime and it can reconstitute itself in other forms and, you know, put put more intermediaries between the government and the social media companies to sort of mask what's going on. Um, I'm 
I'm very happy so far with what Elon Musk has done with Twitter. It has opened up that platform to more conversations than you could have there a year ago. Um, but ultimately, I'm not going to place my trust in any of these social media companies to to do the right thing. And the efforts to found kind of alternative platforms so far have not taken off. So I believe in human creativity and ingenuity. I believe that their their need. I, I think now is the time to found new institutions that operate differently, decentralized uh, public health institutions, decentralized uh, institutions of medicine, decentralized uh, institutions of of media and communication, and and to try to push our lawmakers to decentralize some of what has become excessively centralized at the federal level. Um, the NIH should not be controlling 80% of uh, research funding in the United States because they can control each and every university and each and every researcher who is not going to contradict the favorite policy of someone like Anthony Fauci. So we need 50 state institutes of health rather than one mm. Um, you know, whether that's a block grant or some other uh, a mechanism of of trying to decentralize uh, biomedical science funding. I, I think we need to mo- try to move our public institutions in that direction. And we need to found new private institutions on a more sort of open, decentralized model and, you know, utilize whatever blockchain technologies, things which are uh, above my pay grade and which I don't understand very well, but seem like seem like potentially useful tools Mm -hmm. for these things. I I think we absolutely need to reject central bank digital currencies and digital IDs tied to biometric data because mm -hmm. this will, these two things will tighten the screws on the biomedical security apparatus and make it really, really hard to resist once they're implicated, once, once they're implemented and widely adopted. When you sat down and read through the various uh, evidence, the back and forth emails, the conversations that were happening and going on behind the scenes, what was the one thing that shocked you the most? I mean, many of these federal bureaucrats had this this imperious kind of arrogant tone and stance. I can't believe you people are still you know, annoying the president. <laughs> with with all your free speech. Um, it, I mean, it was really quite repulsive. It was really quite disgusting. I mean, who is this FBI field agent from San Francisco who thinks he should be able to control what ordinary Americans say online? Um, I mean, it's just it's just crazy. Um, and, and I think what's happened with the administrative state um, and, and with the with the deep state, particularly when it comes to our intelligence agencies and our national security agencies, is that they've been operating for decades as a kind of parallel structure of governance. Yep. And, and these people genuinely believe, I mean, this is deep in their DNA and it gets passed on to the new people and you get enculturated into that very quickly. They really believe that they're above the elected officials, and they believe that because in many ways they've been allowed to operate that way for decades. Mm-hmm. Congress can't rein in the CIA. Um, they, they repeatedly try. 
They can't rein in the FBI. Every time one of these agencies gets asked for, um, you know, for documents, they basically say, well, it's a national security issue. So we're going to redact whatever we want to redact and we're going to release whatever we want to release. And you senators just, you know, you kind of have to live with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's another reason why I think we have to battle in the federal courts. Uh, Federal judges have a lot of power. (laughs) Uh, I mean, they really do. Uh, to subpoena information, they have more power than the Senate has to subpoena mm-hmm. certain information. And um, there's a lot of federal judges, of course, that are that are deeply compromised and will just be lackeys for the administrative state and won't and won't push for anything. We happen to have a good federal judge, uh, at least looks good so far in the Missouri v. Biden case, uh, who is allowing us to to get answers, allowing us to subpoena people like Anthony Fauci. Um, and, and, you know, and actually obtain records that are relevant for the, the, the claims that we're making in the case. And it seems to me that, sad to say, Congress seems pretty impotent when it comes to uh, reining in the administrative state. And I think the only power that they have at this point, and they should be willing to exercise it, is the power of the purse. So... Mm-hmm. You know, they, they need to just basically refuse to fund some of these agencies until these agencies uh, clean up their act. I, I, I don't mm-hmm. uh, and, and it doesn't seem to me that we have the political will right yeah. now to do that. Uh, I mean, even, even if in two years the Republicans are control the Senate as well as the House, I'm not sure we would have the political will to actually rein in the administrative state. And that I think that's deeply worrisome. I mean, a perfect example of this is the recent comment, you know, from uh, Rochelle Walensky and and uh, uh, and um, uh, basically uh, representing the CDC and saying that she didn't want there's a bipartisan push, a bipartisan push to make uh, the CDC director um, a politically approved Senate approved yeah. position. Yeah. And she was, you know, uh, whining about that. And um uh, Senator Richard Burr um, from North Carolina, out, the outgoing senator, uh, was asked about it, uh, I believe, by Politico. And his response was tough, yeah. <laughs> which, which is sort of the, the level of frustration that you would yeah. need yeah. from the Congress. You know? And just th- think about how crazy that is, that the CDC director is complaining that they, their, their position be uh, Senate approved. No, it's, um, it's absolutely insane. But again, that yeah. that is that is so symptomatic of the mm-hmm. attitude that's cultivated within those agencies that we really don't have to answer to anybody. Um, no. And, you know, th- th- it's a, it's a kind of weird um, oligarchy is not the, the right word. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I'm not sure what the political term for it would be as it's an, I mean, it's an elitist contempt for yes, not only for ordinary Americans, but certainly for elected officials and, and anyone in a position of, of power that would challenge their authority. I, I find so, it contemptible and disgusting, actually. Yeah. So um, uh, a final question for you, uh, just in terms of what you hope to gain from this Missouri v. Biden case. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, obviously, you can only do so many things. 
you know, you have to decide kind of where to, where to direct your time and your effort. Right. Um, and you're, and you've directed it toward, toward this. And I, as a, a also an NCLA, uh, client who's, who they've won for in the past, um, you know, a, a certainly appreciate their work on this and the work of others. I, I'm just curious what you hope this spawns in terms of ramifications beyond yeah. just this case, uh, in, in other areas of concern. I hope this case creates in its wake a trail of similar cases coming at this from various places and from various angles, because every time you have a case that's allowed to go to discovery, you get more information. And as they say, Mm -hmm. sunlight is the best disinfectant. And what we're seeing and what we're able to obtain, and it is only the tip of the iceberg. What the Twitter files show is only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the real, you know, the real money is in the the algorithms at Twitter. And of Mm -hmm. course, Twitter is one among many social media companies and Facebook in many ways is more powerful when it comes to shaping the views of ordinary Americans. I think Twitter is more powerful when it comes to uh, journalism and shaping the view of of the chattering classes Mm -hmm. and the elites. Um, And so the the Missouri v. Biden case is really a kind of tip of the iceberg case. And I hope that Americans are horrified enough by what they see that there's a there's a there's a political push for Congress to investigate. And there's a political push for um, for this regime to be meaningfully dismantled. And I'm not sure how you slap down these agencies, because whatever the court rules in this regard, I mean, the executive branch is responsible for enforcing the laws. And it's precisely Mm -hmm. the law enforcement agencies of the executive branch that have been the most egregious sort of violators of um, free speech. And and they're they're implicated as defendants. So I'm not clear exactly what the mechanism for enforcing whatever the court rules is is going to be, which is, I, I think, why you would also need Congress to have a keen interest in what's going on here, and perhaps even a president in two years that's willing to, to go to bat and to try to try to uh, fire some people <laughs> that need to be that need to be fired. Um, people don't like to be fired in Washington. No, <laughs> they, they no, very, very they don't. Hard. And most of them can't be fired. I mean, exactly. you know, the president can only fire the, the person at the top of most of these agencies at best. And the whole layer of people right underneath, you know, most of the people doing most of the dirty work here can't be fired directly by the president, which is another huge problem that I think has to be has to be dealt with. Uh, we need uh, we need an executive order or a legislative type of solution to that that issue as well. So what I'm hoping is that this lawsuit can begin to shine some light. And then I think it'll be up to the American people whether they care enough to keep pushing, mm-hmm. uh, because without without a political push from ordinary Americans to say this has to stop. Nothing's going to happen, regardless of the ruling that we get in this case. I mean, the ruling that we get in this case might help the federal government back off the four specific plaintiffs in this case, you know, and stop beating us down on on Twitter or whatever. But that's that's a drop in the ocean of mm-hmm. the kind of, of unconstitutional crimes that the government has been committing. And 
you know, the Constitution is a dead letter if Americans don't care about it anymore. And if, if they don't, uh, if they don't demand of their political leaders in all three branches of government uh, to defend the Constitution. So, yeah. you know, I, I hope we, you know, we're tossing a little stone um, and it, we can't control whether it starts an avalanche or not. All we can do is toss, the, you know, the stone that we have in hand. And I think ordinary Americans are going to have to do the rest. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Ben. Enjoy the conversation. More of the Ben Dominich podcast right after this. So I wanted to talk for a moment about this uh, scandal that uh, the president finds himself in regarding this hypocritical deployment of uh, various uh, classified documents that were at now three locations, uh, his fake uh, pseudonymous uh, think tank uh, with the University of Pennsylvania, his uh, home, apparently, and of course, his garage. Uh, but uh, they, while they were next to the Corvette, uh, he assures us that garage was locked. You may have seen the media reaction to this story in the past week uh, as being a breaking point, really, for the president in terms of his relationship with the media. They seem quite concerned about what they were seeing uh, from the White House and the fact that they had been you know, so false with them that they had played them in such a way that made them look bad. But I think that one of the things we need to keep in mind about this is that very quickly, the media will always return to their normal stance of defending Democrats and upholding them uh, even through, you know, tough times or negative stories. A good example of that is this piece that ran a four byline piece at CNN last week. It reads in part, the early days of 2017 were a whirlwind for Vice President Joe Biden, swearing in a new Congress, a surprise Medal of Freedom, a speech at Davos, and one final trip to Ukraine, partly to wrap up his policy portfolios, partly to tout his accomplishments, and partly to occupy himself following the death of his son a year earlier. Biden thrust himself into work in a final sprint to mark what then appeared to be the end of a four-decade run at the highest levels of government. As, jo as Biden was busy, busy keeping busy, however, his office was shutting down. Aides scrambled to pack up his workspaces in the West Wing, the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, and at his official residence, the Naval Observatory. Those competing objectives, to use his office until the final minutes, even as it was obliged to shut down, made for a muddled and hurried process that left aides packing boxes of documents and papers late into the night, even as more material kept arriving. Of course, uh, as you will recall, there was no such CNN justification for Donald Trump uh, and uh, his flurry of activity prior to leaving office. Though, of course, uh, he, as so many other presidents before him, have uh, you know worked up until the last minute. Look, I think that this is a classic example of what we can come to expect, what we've come to expect from our completely out of kilter media. Uh, and the way that they're willing to spin everything with a very straight face, uh, if it's a Democrat who does it, and attack this very same thing on a litigious and detail-oriented level, if a Republican does it. That's not something that we should be surprised at at this point. But it's also something that I think we need to mentally prepare for going forward. You know, whatever happens in terms of the outcome of the DOJ investigation into Donald Trump, whatever happens in regards to the new special counsel's investigation uh, into Joe Biden, 
the ultimate result will be one uh, that is spun by the media in ways that will look bad for the former president and as good as possible for the current president. And that's something that I think we shouldn't uh, be surprised by. We should prepare for it. We should assume that that's going to be the case because this media, our media, is so inalterably in linked with the Democratic Party regime, their agenda, and everything else that they are trying to push through uh, in terms of national federal policy, that they're willing to go as far as it takes in order to push uh, for uh, Joe Biden to be viewed as someone who only got in trouble because he was just working so hard he couldn't pull himself away. That speech in Davos was just too important. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.